Podcast One Production. Unlock your smartphone. Open your browser. Click on a link. Ever wonder what happens when the page loads? Some things you can see, text and images appearing. Lots of things you can't. The parts that are hidden from you, some of them are just technical supports to make everything work well on whatever smartphone you happen to be using, whether that's a large one or a small one, fast one or a slow one. But there are other bits. It's called cookies that create a breadcrumb trail. Wherever you go on the web, you leave a trail of crumbs. Companies like Google and Facebook follow those trails to learn more about you and what you like. Multiplied by billions of smartphones, it means these organizations know a lot about us. And over the next billion seconds, those cookies will be driving more and more of what we see, hear, and know. Today, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this series, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. And that future, while often amazing, is never without challenges. We've built a planet-wide infrastructure for knowledge sharing. But some of the decisions we've made along the way, in particular, using advertising to pay for the web have produced some unforeseen and unfortunate consequences. Is it too late to turn back? Can we repent of the web's original sin? We're going to pose that question to Robert Tursik. Rob built a lot of the modern media landscape, and now he has some concerns about the monster he helped bring to life. Watching the media as the media watch us on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. So let me set the scene. It's 1994. I've just come home from the first international conference on the World Wide Web, which was basically the 300 people who were researching and putting the web together. One of the folks that I met there was an 18-year-old by the name of Brian Bellendorf, who was working very hard to put Wired magazine online. So Wired was the very first magazine that went from print to an electronic version. And he was working very hard behind the scenes making all of that happen. This is before any of that had gone public. I knew about it because I was in on the secret. And one day I went over to his work to have a conversation with him. And I found him in a hallway moving a cart of computers from one room to another. And I said, Brian, what are you doing? He said, so some friends of mine are setting up a web ad agency. And I just sort of stopped in my tracks and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, there's web pages. Of course I knew there were web pages. So I said, well, people want to buy ads on those web pages. And I, I literally said, I don't understand what you mean. He said, well, basically you can think of them as maybe little images that people put on the web page and, you know, people will make me make a little ad for something. And I literally stopped and turned to him and said, people will pay for that, which shows you that, yes, I may be a futurist today, but I can be awfully dim. And, and Brian, bless his soul, was very patient with me. He said, actually, they already have a couple of clients. They have Volvo and Ford as customers who are willing to pay to place advertisements on pages on the web. And it turns out Brian you know, went on his merry little way. He was on his way to becoming one of the founding partners of a firm called Organic Online, which was the very first web advertising firm. So this is all the way back at the very beginning 
of the web. Now, at around the same time that I was being stupid about advertising on the web, our guest was working very hard with Monty Python, creating the very first awesome interactive CD-ROM. Just at about the moment, the web was about to make CD-ROMs much harder to sell. But that wasn't Rob Tursik's first foray into media. Back in the 1980s, Rob established himself as a wunderkind at MTV, defining the way television would look and work for the next 30 years. Rob has worked for Sony, for Oprah. Oh, and along the way, Rob was the president of a company called Packet Video. You probably wouldn't have heard of them, but they were the first company that made products for streaming video. That's the core technology behind Netflix and lots of other media companies. Rob Tursik created much of the media world that we live in today. Rob, welcome to the next billion seconds. Well, thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So let's go back now in the early days when you started working, you were working at MTV in Asia, and advertising was, I guess, kind of old-fashioned at that point. How would people sort of, how would advertising pay for a broadcast at that point? You know, it's interesting. At the time, we thought we were really sophisticated, right? So if you were part of MTV in New York City, you felt like you were on the absolute cutting edge of the media universe, and we were pioneering all these new techniques of reaching people and new ways to advertise and so forth. Um, and then um, MTV asked me to go start, go launch the network in Southeast Asia, based in Hong Kong, but launching in about 25 countries around South Asia, including China and India and so forth. And um, there were no advertising markets for what we called the youth segment or the youth market. There was no such thing as a youth market at that point. In Asia, in most countries in 1991, you had... Um, government-owned channels, like in India, there was Dudarshan 1 and Dudarshan 2, and there was no commercial radio at all. So we looked at this and said, holy cow, this is going to be like shooting fish in a barrel because <laughs> there was no competitor at all in the landscape. And, um, and yet, advertising agencies and their clients didn't have a concept of young people as a market segment that was desirable. Because they'd never tried to sell them anything before. It's hard to think of that today, right? Because right. when you walk around Singapore and Hong Kong or anywhere, you know, KL or any place else in Asia, it's a booming youth market. But that concept was absolutely brand new. We had to kind of bring it in and show them. And of course, what MTV had was kind of hedonism uh, on the air. That scared advertisers who were mar largely a conservative bunch. What we'd always try to do is marshal some statistics, uh, put together a compelling package. And MTV was quite good at research. We did eight kinds of research every single day. So our idea was we're going to bring in data at the time. Uh, you know, looking back, it's funny, right? Because we would phone people and we'd do focus groups. Now it's all, that all seems kind of uh, quaint. Um, but at the time, that was how you did it. You built up a package of value and you said, look, this is going to be an important segment. And your advertisers either believed you or they didn't. When you're launching a new anything, any kind of new media property, um, you're really selling in a lot of hope. Right. And um, and people listen. It's just like an investor when you try and raise money for a startup. They listen and they say, is this market really going to emerge or not? And they're going to use their own critical judgment to decide if they believe your story or not and buy in. And the notion is they're buying in today at a low price with the hope and expectation that it's going to grow if you execute. So it's very much like making an investment. Our first advertiser for MTV Asia was Sumitomo Heavy Industry. <laughs> Who make industrial <laughs> equipment, right? I think somebody at Star TV pulled in a favor from a longtime partner there to help us just hit our ad revenue targets. Uh, but we had really shoddy research. The one big discovery we had in Asia was um, in the United States, you can ask people to tell you information. They're quite happy to share it. In Asia, people aren't in the habit of giving away information for free to a bunch of strangers. So we had a hard time extracting market data. And um, that was really funny. We, we at one point put up... Um, uh, we put up a message late at night when there was there were no ads on. We didn't have any sponsors for the late night segments. So we put up a, a kind of a um, 
a bumper that said, look, if you're watching, send us a fax and let us know where you are. Sent us a fax right there. A fax, yeah. right? And that tells you the era that we were in. This is pre-email in 1991-92. And um, we started getting not hundreds, but thousands of faxes from northern India. At one point, we had four fax machines. This is in the days when they were a roll of paper, right? That thermal paper. And so we would come in in the morning, and there'd just be scrolls of paper all over the floor from people from North India sending in requests and asking us to come see India and so on. And finally, I said, look, I'm flying over there. I want to see what's going on. Now, we were based in Hong Kong. It's very Chinese-oriented. We were very focused on China, the big market. So there was not much support for going to India. Um, but what had happened was that you had the famous kite walls. Do you know the story of the kite walls? So um, a local merchant in a village in India would buy a satellite dish and 10 miles of coaxial cable. And connect everyone in the village. They would fly kites across the village, and then they'd use that string to pull a rope, and the rope would pull a, a coax cable, and they'd just drape it over the electrical system or whatever else, and they would wire up the village. But it would happen then that whoever that merchant was, when he changed channels, <laughs> everybody's channel would change. And so the faxes we were getting were coming from teenagers saying, listen, the, the man in our village who owns the cable system he likes to watch the BBC News at 8 o'clock, and that's when the Top 20 countdown is going on. Could you move it an hour ahead or an hour later so that we can convince him not to, to change the channel back? Because we actually have to go knock on his door and ask him to change the channel. This is how rudimentary it was back in those days. <laughs> okay. okay so, and this is literally just a billion seconds ago, right? Yeah. To, to sort of give people a sense of the time. That's a billion, it's only a billion seconds 25 ago. 25 years, yeah. So, so we've come really, really far. You're not even a billion seconds. We've come really, really far. Now, we start to come into the web era. And, and you know, I was talking about these early days in 1994. And in the same way, Volvo and Ford were willing to make a bet, right? They were willing to make a bet that they could spend a little money on these banner ads, on these web pages. And it seems like one of the decisions that we made, and it comes back to this idea of the original sin, was that rather than charging people to view content, which is how it had always worked before this, that you would actually put a banner on a web page rather than charging them to buy an issue or a page of something, which is what you were doing if you'd had a newspaper. Why do you suppose in 2000, probably in 1994, 1995, we went hog wild for advertising rather than for something that was a pay model? Well, this is a great question. You know, there's no really good way to do payments on the internet. Microtransactions, I should say. You can so use so a microtransaction card. is something where it's basically less than a quarter, and most credit card transactions yeah. will will nip the ticket for a quarter. That's right. And so you 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 know the, the way they do it, like in the Apple App Store, is they aggregate the the purchases, and then once a month they'll do one transaction one time and take that hit from the credit card company. But if you're running like a blog or even a newspaper on the web, uh, there's no way to 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 do those those purchases. You can't do a kind of an impulse purchase. There should be. It'd be great, right? Some mechanism for people to say, hey, that was an article that was worth five cents and I'd like to forward it to a friend for another nickel. I'd probably do that and I'd probably rack up a couple dollars a day of spending that way. I wouldn't mind. you know, Or maybe it's a fraction of a penny. Maybe I'm off by an order of magnitude. If you have enough people... Um, and some of you know some of the blogs and web, web publications are getting audiences at that scale sure. where they could make the numbers work and thereby preserve your privacy, thereby preserve their integrity of their audience. Instead, what's happened is we've kind of degraded the integrity of the audience where your, your privacy is for sale now. Because now what happened, my understanding is what happened is that you stick that advertisement on the web page 
And at some point, someone told one of the advertisers that the computers actually collected the internet addresses of everyone who saw that ad. And so all of a sudden, you go from this idea that, you know, you're buying an ad on MTV and these crazy kids in India are going to see it and send you a fax, but you don't really know much about them, to this idea that you actually have this number for a computer that can actually kind of be attached to a person. And so somewhere in 2000, uh, probably in 95 or 96, there's, I guess, a bit of a penny drop when we realize not only can you get ads out on web pages, but because of the way the web works, you can actually know an awful lot about the person on the other end. That's exactly right. What makes the internet different from broadcast media, um, in broadcast media, it's one to many, so you don't really know who's listening and you have to do all sorts of research to approximate it. I gave you some funny examples of that a minute ago with MTV, but to a large extent, that's still true today. And the weird paradox there is that your cable company actually knows exactly what you're watching and how many minutes you spend doing it. And where you live. But they're not allowed, they're regulated, so they're not allowed to share that data back to the, broadca- the broadcasters. So um, here you have a classic case of government, normal government regulation that's, there, that's designed to protect the privacy of people who are watching. You don't have that regulation on the internet, at least in the United States. You're starting to see a move towards that elsewhere. Certainly in the EU, there's the EU's at the forefront. Yeah, right. and they have a lot of reasons historically to care about privacy. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, so, uh, so the notion on, on broadcast then is that you're going to approximate an audience. That's why we always talk about demographic segments and lifestyle segments and so on, because you can't talk about specific people. The promise, so you say all the people between, say, 25 and 34 who right, exactly. are women who earn $50,000 a year. Yeah, who have a car or are looking for a car. They're starting their first job. You know, they're moving into an apartment. So you have a lot of like, you know, kind of indicators about lifestyle that you can approximate. To, they're going to buy a bunch of stuff. And obviously, younger audiences are way more valuable than older audiences because they need more stuff. And they're at the beginning of that life cycle of buying things. Um, on the internet, because you can get so precise about people, and this is, you know, the, the progression from you know, 2000 until today, the last 17 years, mm. has been ever tighter ability to target audiences and uh, ever tighter ability to gather information. So there's a pretty rich dossier of information about each person. There's a very rich profile that you and I don't get to see about ourselves, where we live, what we do, how, what we watch. I think a lot of people aren't aware of how much information has been gathered about them on the internet. There's this thing, and we call it the cookie. To be clear, the cookie is just a little bit of data, and the data gets fed in by the website when you're loading the web page, and it just sort of sticks in the browser. And then the next time you come back to that website, the website can ask, ooh, can I have that cookie back again? And it knows that you've come back, right? And there's plenty of techniques. We, we could go deeper. I mean, cookies are a little bit of a, you know old idea from the 90s. Um, you know, today, there are more sophisticated techniques like canvas fingerprinting where you can get extremely uh, deep right. knowledge. You can track people across the web without their understanding, without going down the rabbit hole of those technologies. In general, what they're meant to do is to start build up a profile of your behaviors. Now, here, here's what's important about that. So it's more than a breadcrumb trail. It's a piece of string that is linking you from point to point yeah. to point to point to point. And you might not even be aware of your browsing habits. And so if people, like, here's the thing that anyone could do at home. Go look at your web browser history. And if you pop open your history, you're like, holy cow, I just looked at 87 pages in the last 20 minutes. I, you know, because you go into that web trance, right, yeah. where you're just going from one link to another, one story to another, the sidebar links you to another article and so forth. Uh, so once you're in that trance, you start to lose awareness of all the pages you've been, all the things you've looked at. You certainly lose awareness of the advertising that you've looked at as well. So it's it's there on some unconscious level, but you're not consciously monitoring your behaviors. And um, yet, what you should know is that absolutely without a doubt, somebody else is, and they're recording it. 
and they're selling it. Every time you go to a major website, let's say a Yahoo page, just for instance, I'm not criticizing Yahoo in any way, any major publisher, um, you'll notice that even if you're on a high-speed broadband connection, it takes a second or two for that page to load. Mm. That's not the content. That's not because it's got a lot of photos or some video. That's because up to 200 companies are inserting some code into your browser, uh, something to track you. And it, we're waiting on that ad network to load all that data into your browser to track you. That's what the delay is. That's what the lag so the is. The delay is sort of, oh, wait, this is Rob. Mm-hmm. These are the things that we're going to send to Rob today. And there's a real-time auction happening for your eyeballs where they say this profile with this behavior is now available on this page at this instant. We're loading the page right now and in a millisecond. And these are computers doing the auction because that's, exactly. that's way faster than any human being it, could act. It, so, all, it all happens in milliseconds, but, but that's that's the delay. You're you, waiting on the advertising. But you can copy. imagine sort of the auction room at Sotheby's, all right, and Rob's picture pops up <laughs> and all of a sudden all these hands go up in the audience and they're all bidding for the fact that there's this this guy and he's got these and and all of your demographic profile which is attached to this right everything that we know because of the kinds of things that you looked at and the kinds of places you've been all of that is there so it is a snapshot of you yeah i mean to be fair it might not know my name it might not have my picture just to clarify because i wouldn't want anyone listening to get confused but they don't need that right that's not important what's important is that i'm a you know man of a certain age and i live in a certain zip code and i have a certain browsing behavior and they can extract an awful lot of, of data around that. And then if you buy database enhancers, it's actually quite easy to start to match that with a real personality. So it's just not difficult anymore to take someone's browsing and search history, correlate that with a credit card and purchase behavior, and all of a sudden you know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, you know your name and your picture. Exactly. And we're talking about hundreds of companies. This isn't just you know Yahoo or Google or... Or Facebook uh, or anyone. No, it's, it's the, the data scrapers, uh, these, these companies that aggregate data and resell it. They're kind of the scary companies because most people are unaware of them. And we don't really know what they're doing with their data. We don't know who they're selling it to. And if this is sort of an issue. If you care about this issue, uh, I think it's unavoidable that on a two-way network, your data is going to be recorded because we can do that. That actually helps us make better content. It helps us serve people more, right. more effectively. Uh, so in a way, that works for us. The issue is when they resell your data, you lose control. Already, you don't have any idea what data is being captured but this idea that your data can be resold to some other parties and resold and resold and resold. And so you end up with a situation like the one we have with Equifax. Here's an organization we never asked to track us. They track our, our credit worthiness, whatever that means. Yeah. But they also track our health care and they track our insurance. They track a lot of other features about our lives, uh, the cars that we have, where we live, what zip code we're in, and so forth. They track all this information, and now they're supplementing that with as much other data that they can buy from these data aggregators. And so they have a very rich profile. When they spill your data on the internet, they're literally spilling everything up to and including your government-issued ID. And so Equifax had announced the an enormous break-in of... 150 million records, uh, half, the, half the adult population of the United States. States. All right, so, which is, you know, that's a pretty... And of course, at this point, I think just uh, yesterday before we recorded this, and this is being recorded on September 29th, 2017, the CEO stepped down at Equifax. Yeah. It's broken the organization wide open. But there's no penalties, right? They'll get No, he's getting a $90 million payout. Right. Because that's how these things work. Great. So this is the issue. There's no real penalty, right? So um, they might get a few million dollars slap on the wrist from the Federal Trade Commission. But then again, they also spilled several hundred thousand records of UK residents. Mm. And there will be no reprisal, no penalty from that. Um, And so we have this sort of situation where, you know, the United States right now is almost entirely unregulated with the exception of financial history. There's Equifax and your healthcare data. Those are the only two things the United States really regulates carefully. Elsewhere in the world, particularly in Europe, there's a move on to have much stricter privacy regulation and much more control by the person about who has their data, who gets access to it and so forth. 
since the internet companies are based in the U.S. and without much government supervision, mm. it's not very likely that there's going to be any pressure on these companies to change their behaviors. They've got a very profitable business model right now. And by the way, along the way, not only have they strip-mined your data and sold your identity for profit, they've also destroyed the traditional media business. And so what used to be very good businesses that didn't nose around in people's private homes, those companies are by and large, you know, they're, they're by the wayside now. They, they're, they're so these are the classic broke. newspapers yeah. and the classic uh, news publishers and the magazine publishers, all of these guys. They're struggling to survive, and increasingly they're going towards clickbait kind of articles, you know, those grabber headlines and... Um, very short articles that are loaded with stuff that gets you excited or scared um, because it's just click-worthy and it's very shareable. I don't think that's actually done us uh, any favors in terms of the quality of journalism on the Internet. All right. We're going to talk about how the quality of journalism has changed with respect to profiling when we're back with Rob Tursik on The Next Billion Seconds. And we're back talking to Rob Tursik about where it all went horribly wrong. No, I, and I laugh a little bit and because we have talked and I've talked with Andy Pullane quite a bit and also with Genevieve Bell about sort of the more pervasive nature of surveillance culture. And of course, one of the terms that people are trying to use with respect to the internet is that it's surveillance capitalism, that people make money off of watching you. And I really want to take a look at Facebook because Facebook is in a sense, I mean, Google is, is different, but Facebook is kind of the category example here because Facebook started out with everyone just sort of sharing everything and you'd load up your news feed and you'd see what everyone was doing and that got a bit overwhelming and people actually started to back off of Facebook around 2011 because it was just a little bit too much and so Facebook said okay we're gonna curate your news feed well curate is an interesting choice of words because what it means is that they're selectively either adding or taking things away from your news feed in order to keep you glued to that news feed as much as possible. The reason people check Facebook 50 times a day is because Facebook has figured out how to turn everyone else's news into crack for people. Yeah. Right, And so they've built this learning system that does that. While Facebook is doing that, it's also then figuring out because it needs to what you really like and what you really don't like. And it can do that because it can see how you react. Do you follow that link? Do you forward that along? Do you, do you, know, do you put up an angry or whatever it is? So, so Facebook has to, in order to sort of keep its page views up, which it needs because it's an advertising-sponsored site, we come back to that again, in order for advertising to pay for Facebook, Facebook had to turn itself into a giant surveillance machine. That's exactly right. So Americans learned this to their dismay during the uh, 2016 presidential election and the run-up to that election in November of 2016. Um, Facebook famously had an engagement problem in the years before that. People were moving out to other mobile apps. They were engaging. They were logging into Facebook less, as you pointed out. And so they had to find a way to get people more engaged. And what they discovered is angry people click. So anger is a phenomenally good way to keep people engaged. And so your feed somehow magically has evolved, perhaps not magically, not, not accidentally, not accidentally, uh, has evolved to to turn into this emotionally charged current. It's it's very powerful. Uh, it's incredibly addictive. Engagement is a code word for addiction, right? Mm. That's the two words are interchangeable. We we talk about engagement with advertisers. What we really mean is people are hooked and they can't turn, they can't look away, they can't turn away from this. Um, you get that fear of missing out. That's also a part of it. So. Um, 
during the election campaign, it got to fever pitch. And of course, you've heard the stories about Macedonian teenagers generating fake news about Republicans, you know, things that were aimed at people that would simply get a rise out of them. News that was absolutely untrue. You know, Hillary Clinton has some fatal infection or something. Right, or, or was having seizures and had to yeah. wear special glasses or... And we can none laugh. of this is true, by the way, listeners. <laughs> none of this is true. We want to make clear this well, is all fake news. We can laugh at the stupidity of the people who fall for that and click and share those kinds of stories. But the reality is all of us fall into this trance, and it is a trance. You're mesmerized by this news feed, and it's optimized for your own particular attention. So they have a tremendous amount of information now that's psychological in nature. This mm. isn't behavioral anymore. Now they have psychological insight into what provokes you, what gets you excited, what gets you engaged, what keeps you staying on the page. They know how long... You dwell, even if you're scrolling down that feed, they know how long you dwell on each thing. You, yeah, because again, every time you touch the screen of that smartphone, mm -hmm. it sends a little message back to Facebook. Yeah. So uh, the way to think about Facebook is, um, you know, a lot of people are, are outraged when um, a pharmaceutical company or like a skincare company will test their products on animals. Right. But the way to think about Facebook is they're actually testing their product on live human beings. And this is very troubling. If you think about it, you're the test subject, right? Often, by and large, you're on the receiving end of but, that test. But to go back to this, in 2014, it was revealed that Facebook had tested the news feed, changing the positive and negative tone on the news feed on mm -hmm. 669,000 people and didn't tell any of them, but noted that if you gave people more positive stuff in their news feed, they tended to react more positively. If you gave them more negative stuff, they tended to react negatively. Yeah. Now... What they really wanted to show was that, in fact, people would either share more positive or negative depending on what they were being shared. Mm -hmm. What everyone who looked at the study came out with was, A, you didn't tell anyone you were testing them, and B, you clearly have a built a tool that allows you to emotionally manipulate people. And man manipulate their political choices. Mm -hmm. So this is the big concern. Around 2015, there were stories that popped up that said, gee, Facebook could affect an election. It right. could affect the outcome of an election. And Facebook vehemently denied it, denied it, denied it. Uh, now, finally, the U.S. Congress has kind of woken up to the issue and they're starting to investigate and they're starting to, you know, they just brought Mark Zuckerberg in and yesterday they had the CEO of Twitter in, and they wirebrush these guys, right? They, they, they ask questions, very difficult questions. They put them on the spot. Um, it doesn't, that in itself isn't going to change anything. Here's what will change is the threat of regulation. It doesn't have to, we're not actually have to regulate. The threat of regulation will change behaviors. Um, you know, Think of the United States Congress as kind of like a protection scheme like from the mafia where they come in and they say, hey, this is a nice business you've got here. It'd, sure be, a shame. It'd be a shame if somebody came in and screwed it up. And so, you know, we're just going to apply these regulations in kind of a ham-fisted way and it'll just decrease your efficiency a little bit. Oh boy, this is a nightmare scenario for anybody who's operating a large-scale internet business. The worst scenario is that they now have to deal with that on the scale of a couple hundred different countries with different regulations. I think this is about what's, what, what's going to happen. Mm. So, the companies themselves will start to change their behavior in anticipation of that and say, look, we can manage this ourselves. They're trying to do that. I'm a little bit unclear that they're actually going to succeed. Okay, so it's interesting. John Robb, who is a very bright thinker and someone whom I, I'm hoping will be on this series at some point, wrote an article about two weeks ago and said, you know, the governments are now starting to understand the power Facebook has on the way populations vote and their political views and how active they are. Maybe what we're going to see is an accommodation where Facebook does its best to keep people happy and not too politically engaged or active. And the price for that, the bargain is going to be that Facebook is going to get to play these kinds of games around building and holding on to its audience. And it was, he, he raised it as a, this is a possibility. And the thing is, you can't deny, you can't wave it out of hand. 
and you have to think that some governments are going to take that bargain. Maybe not the U.S. government, maybe not the Mark, Australian it's, government. It's already happening. Vietnam, Facebook has already complied with Vietnam's request to censor Facebook in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So it's already happening. Facebook is going to gradually give in to every government demand. They have no choice because the alternative is, is what happens to them in China, where they simply black, blackballed out of that country. Investors won't stand for it. Zuckerberg won't stand for it. So they'll compromise and they'll work with government. I want to just take a second to note how far we've come from those John Perry Barlow days. Okay, so days John, of optimism. John Perry Barlow wrote something called the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace in, I think, 1993, mm-hmm. in which he laid out some very clear principles of openness and freedom and sharing and all of and this. And he said to the old governments of the past, don't come into our space, right? This is a place for freedom. This is a place where we're going to freely exchange our ideas and so forth. Look how far we've come since then. What we've built is the world's greatest surveillance apparatus that can gather data on a scale, on a micro scale, that any oppressive authoritarian regime would just dream of having at their Oh, you know, the Stasi would have loved the modern era. Okay, look, we've done enough to make the audience kind of upset and cranky, and thank you for listening for this far. Let's start to talk about what we can do about that. All right, but we haven't talked yet about the location graph, and I want to get into that at some point. Uh, uh, all right, well, well <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about tools that would tend, I think, away from these things. So what's the Brave browser? Oh, so Brave is a cool thing. So the founder of Mozilla and a group of other web Illuminati got together and decided to deal with this issue of advertising. Advertising being, let's say, some people call it the original sin of the internet. It's where everything went wrong. We started to corrupt this notion of uh, democratized media and free access to media and free sharing of ideas um, and turn it to something that's a little bit grimmer and darker and maybe Orwellian uh, than what we're just describing. So the brave folks said the problem here is there's no alternative business model and the surveillance business model is extremely strong. It's a very powerful one. Um, it works for want of a, uh, a better one. So they proposed a better one, uh, which is a microtransaction model based on a cryptocurrency. Um, and okay, so a microtransaction, again, is these small, these penny, two penny, three penny transactions. Yeah, too small to do on a credit card. Right. It wouldn't be efficient to use any of our traditional payment mechanisms. Um, so hitherto it hasn't been possible to pay somebody three cents to look at an article on the internet. But with the, with the Brave browser, what they would do is they would protect your privacy, first of all. So you, you would prevent people from putting cookies in the browser. That would be the only browser out there that allows that to happen, right? So that would, it would keep you uh, anonymous. And then built into that would be this microtransaction mechanism. And as a user, you would have a wallet of, um, of these tokens. So it's a digital currency. Right. And you would have the choice to pay for an article. And if you didn't want to pay for the article, you could look at ads, right? And then they could also have a transaction model for your data and you release certain data to that publisher if you wanted to trade off data. But at least you'd have a choice in, um, in how you would manage that. Um, here's what's interesting. When they came out with the scheme, a lot of people said, come on, it's pie in the sky, microtransactions. Are you kidding? But there's tremendous pent-up interest in some alternative business model uh, a few weeks before they did their initial coin offering. Okay, so this is where they were actually basically selling people the currency that they would be using to be able to pay for these ads. Yeah, the way an ICO or uh, initial coin offering works is a company comes along and says, look, we're going to create a new digital currency for this particular digital marketplace. And um, it's going to allow us to exchange value for something, you know, content or information or service or something. Uh, So if you're going to use our platform for that service, we're going to compensate people with this um, digital currency that we're, we're minting. Right. And if you buy in now, you can buy them at a discount, assuming that the ecosystem grows and prospers, there'll be demand for the currency and it will go up in value. So buy in now, get in cheap. So the analogy that I found useful for the ICO, the initial coin offering, is 
the idea that someone's building a casino in the desert. The casino doesn't exist. There's no plan to build it yet. Um, but they say, hey, look, buy these chips, and someday I'll build a casino. And when the casino's <laughs> sure. a big success, you can come use the chips in that casino, and, and I promise not to run off to Mexico with your cash. Uh, All right, so the Brave Browser is the casino. <laughs> it's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> but, no, 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 but, but just to, to bring this home, so the Brave yeah. Browser, have they built the Brave Browser yet? And so, so they have. And the, and the team here has a great deal of credibility. And by the way, I should say, every successful ICO, a, a huge amount, of the biggest factor probably in the success of those ICOs, those initial coin offerings, is the credibility of the team. Right. Because you're buying based on someone's promise that they're going to go do something. In the case of the Brave Browser, you have a team that built the greatest open source browser that's in use right now, Mozilla. Right. So people have a lot of confidence that they're going to do it. Um, but what's interesting is they came out with an announcement a couple weeks before the coin offering. They said, there's a lot of demand. There's more demand than we expected, so you should be prepared, folks, that we're probably going to sell out all of the coins, all the tokens are going to sell out in minutes, if not seconds. And how, how long did it take to sell all the coins? They raised $35 million in 30 seconds. That's $70 million a minute. That's pretty good. Yeah, not, not bad if you can do it. Of course, it remains to be seen if, if they can implement this. But what that tells you is that there's tremendous desire right. from people to find an alternative business model, one that doesn't involve surveillance capitalism. So does that mean then that there's maybe a hope for a little newspaper publisher who actually wants to be able to go to a model where its readers are paying to read the stories? Yes, yeah, it could work this, for that, but it could also, here's a whole bunch of examples. A local newspaper right now, there's no business model for them right. on the internet because their reach isn't sufficient to be important. So they're only going to be able to do business with, um, you know, with Google or with uh, you know, a really bad ad network. And, and that's typically where they go. But also imagine an individual investigative journalist could actually find a group of people who would pay, you know, maybe a few tokens, a few coins. Right. That actually might turn out to be a business model that makes sense. You're seeing a lot of examples of this within, so within this investigative is journalism right now. A fellow named Kevin Kelly, who's very wise, the first editor-in-chief of Wired, wrote a piece called A Thousand True Fans, which mm-hmm. he, he later turned into 5,000 True Fans, which is like if you're a musician or presumably an investigative journalist and you can get, say, 5,000 people to give you 10 bucks a year, you actually, it's not a great living, but you have a living to be able to pursue the thing that you love. And so this maybe is the mechanism to make that possible. And of course, we've seen crowdfunding, we've seen Kickstarter, we've seen things like this, Patreon. There are examples for how that works. This now becomes part of the mix, but particularly where maybe publishing and the web is concerned. Yeah, so the distinction, all those examples are valid distinctions. The Kevin Kelly piece is well worth looking at. A thousand true fans, I love it. Um, the, the notion there, though, is always like in Kickstarter. Here's a product I'd like to make, and here's the plant. Again, here's, here's a, the here's casino a, I'd like to build in the desert. Here, well, it's different, right? So here's a product, right? It's a thing, and you're trying to find a customer before you built the product. Mm-hmm. So the team says, "Here's our team. Here's our credentials. Here's our plans. Here's our factory in China. It's going to actually make the thing for us." And that seems reasonably plausible. So you donate your seventy-five dollars to support their campaign, but it's like selling a product that doesn't exist. And then if you get enough customers, then you go make the product. Um, by the way, that was a business model in mail order with catalogs uh, and with magazines long before. You know, in the New Yorker, there would be you know, those um, in the back of the New York magazine back in the 70s. You could buy one of those right-hand column um, small ads that would say, best chili recipe in the world, send $6 and a self-addressed stamped envelope. And if you got enough of those in, then you'd find somebody to make the chili recipe for you and stuff the envelopes and send it back and you were collecting money. It was a fabulous business model. So that's what Kickstarter is. It's not really much of an innovation on top of that old idea. Here, what we're saying with the tokens and the coins, the coin offerings, is we're not saying here's a product we'd like to make. 
Instead, they're saying, here's a whole ecosystem we'd like to create, and it's an alternative ecosystem. And by ecosystem, I mean a market space where lots of participants right. can prosper and grow and right. offer innovative services. So there are people services. creating content. There are people delivering content. There are people selling content. I mean, it's everything. Aggregating it, marketing content, packaging the content right. for you, creating news feeds. So suddenly, imagine with a basic attention token, you might just be a great curator who puts together 10 links a day, but they're super links for a particular group of people that really want to really follow you and they don't have the time or the attention to, uh, to do that themselves. And they might pay you a small sum, maybe a dollar a month. You know, It doesn't mm. need to be a huge amount of money, but collectively with thousands of people, suddenly that's a business. Right. And so this makes that, or promises to make that a lot easier. When do you reckon we're going to start to see all of this sort of fall into place? Well, you know, BAT is here. It's a real thing. Brave Browser is coming out. It's a real thing. So I say watch the space. This is unfolding before our very eyes. And they're hardly the only people who are trying to do this. All right, let's bring this forward sort of in order to sort of tie things up. We have a way through, all right? Let's now touch on location tracking because this sort of ties into where we're going, where we are now and where we're going. So we're all carrying a smartphone around with us. That smartphone has GPS on it and it's connected to the mobile networks. And it's constantly, because it's connected to the mobile networks, it actually has to give out its location all the time because you have to figure out which mobile tower you're talking to. Exactly. When you're carrying a phone in your pocket, which most people do, uh, or in your purse, you have to imagine there's a beacon in your in your pocket or purse that is basically saying, I'm here right now. Oh, now I'm over here. Now I'm over here. Hello, I'm over here. I'm over here now. I'm over here. And there's, you know, three billion of these things right now roaming around the planet. Um, it's not just the mobile phone operators or the phone network operators that gather that data because many of the apps that you give permission to collect that data mm -hmm. as well. And you've done that because you want the app to work better. Think of like a you know restaurant recommendation type app or any type of search application. Um, you, you want to get the benefit of that service, and so you're going to give it, you're going to give it permission to track your location. That's a rich business. So you know, in, on Facebook, we have the social graph. Everyone knows about that. That's your friend network. On Twitter, we've got the interest graph, and the interest graph is all the hashtags that you follow and so forth. Now we've got the location graph coming from your mobile phone, the proximity graph. That's all the hotspots that you pass in a given day. And just as you pass by... Hotspots, Wi-Fi wi hotspots, exactly. because your phone actually listens to those and yeah. goes, oh, I just saw that hotspot. I must be over here. It helps you get a little more accurate yeah. on the location tracking. So that will tell you a great pattern about how that person browses each day. Think about a retailer, how valuable that proximity graph might be. Well, I know that if you walk into a mall, if you walk into a Westfield here in Australia... It's already listening to you, yep. listening to your Wi-Fi and listening to your Bluetooth, most of which you keep on most of the time on your smartphone. Yeah. And so it actually watches exactly where you go when you're in the mall. And so this is a real issue for um, the big retail shops. You know, E-commerce is demolishing traditional retail. And as it demolishes it, it's forcing the retailers to reinvent themselves in order to survive. How do you fight back against Amazon? Amazon's almost 50% of e-commerce revenue in the United States right now. If you're a traditional retailer, you're not going to beat them in e-commerce, so you're going to have to reinvent your physical store. So what they're doing is they're bringing web technologies into the store. Uh, so there's a big retail show that happens So is this going York. to be the second original sin? Well, this is the concern, right? The, the surveillance capitalism model has been so successful in the digital domain that right. it's now extending into the real world and it's bending the way the real world works. We're starting to impose digital rules on the real world. I don't think most people are aware of it. I don't think most people are ready for it. Um, but if you go to the big retail uh, exhibitor show now, 
you know, it used to be people who had special displays or shopping carts or whatever. Now it's 100% technology companies. And it's all about tracking, creating hotspots, uh, the ability to like map user journeys inside of the store, the ability to A-B test two different store layouts. Uh, so if you're like a national chain, you can mm. start to optimize the way traffic moves through your store, maximize revenue and so forth. It's extraordinary. So, so a physical store is going to be like your Facebook feed. It's going it, to be extensively tested and, and customized and reflecting exactly how it can be most addictive while you're walking through the store. Chances are a physical store is actually going to be tied into your Facebook feed and they're going to recognize your face because you've been face tagged by your friends, whether you like it or not. And they're going to recognize that in the store camera and they're going to match that. And then some artificial intelligence will start to pull up all the things you like and they'll tailor the in-store experience too. They'll be able to determine whether you're a high net worth customer or somebody who's a good shopper, a loyal customer. They'll also notice, and this is how they're going to sell it in, they're going to notice if you're a shoplifter, a known shoplifter, they'll sell it in as a security feature. So stores will appreciate that, right? So they can alert their security team to find you. But once they've got the shoplifters tagged, they're going to have everybody else in the store tagged as well. I don't mean to make it sound like we live in 1984. And yet. And yet, these technologies exist. They're being heavily marketed right now. Retailers are testing out emotional tracking so they can use artificial intelligence to track your face, uh, facial expression. And switch with the new iPhone 10 is going to get a lot easier because it's got a camera, the true depth camera, that's really good at that. Yeah. And then, you know, you probably saw the news last week, um, a, a little bit speculative. Stanford researchers said that they can tell whether someone is uh, gay or straight yeah. based on their facial characteristics. Now, this is probably untrue. So that's a, it was a gross overstatement of what the research actually demonstrated. But the potential is there. And you can imagine now, in some places, this notion of um, it's an outdated pseudoscience from the 19th century. This idea that phrenology, someone's, someone's physical characteristics are going to tell you about their personality yeah. or yeah. their traits and so forth. It's, it's been disproven, right? It's a discredited idea. But unfortunately, this new research is going to revive that idea, and the exactly wrong people in the wrong governments are going to think it actually works, and they're going to try to impose it. In China, they're trying to use the same technology or similar technology to determine whether or not someone's a criminal. In other words, pre-crime. They're trying to detect pre-crime based on your facial characteristics. So, Robert, I mean, obviously the question here is, what do we do? I, I, you can't expect people to throw away Facebook or to throw away their smartphones or to give up a lot of the affordances that we get because of this. Like, I don't get lost anymore. I have access to all the world's knowledge in my hand. But the question, I guess, is equity. Are we, do we have it in our power to change direction? It's a, it's a fair question, and I want to be clear. No one's here to alarm your listeners. I hope that wasn't what we just did. Perhaps we did. Uh, maybe we overstated it somewhat, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think actually probably we're just scratching the surface. The fact is we're here now. This isn't the future. This isn't some far-off time or some hypothetical circumstance. This is now. This is the world we're in. We live in that fishbowl already. The data's already being collected. And by the way, if you use a credit card or go to an ATM machine, other organizations are also collecting data about your whereabouts. So that's the world that we live in today. I think the first thing is reasserting your control over your identity begins with awareness. And so part of why we're having these conversations is to help people understand the milieu, the environment that we're in. When you're in the fishbowl, it's very hard to see the environment that you're in. So we're trying to show them, look, you live in the fishbowl. Here's the dimension of the fishbowl, and this is what the people outside the fishbowl get to see and get to know. 
Um, so begin with awareness. Second thing is then, what are some of the choices? We talked about a couple of choices, um, you know, the Brave browser being one. But there's also many people that I know uh, use, you know, use Tor, the, the Tor browser. And you can um, Tor browser. If you yeah. Google Tor browser, you get a browser that's very safe. You see people opting for various ways to hide their tracks on the internet, VPNs and so forth, the virtual private network. Uh, some people are trying to anonymize their traffic. You can do something similar in a phone. I think it's great to say that Apple is very concerned about this issue. Unlike Google, Apple's business model isn't surveilling on their customers, and so Apple is going to take steps to improve people's security, and I think you'll see those who can afford it are going to opt into the Apple ecosystem. They'll feel a little bit more secure there. Also, it's worth pointing out that Apple stood up to the U.S. government. It's the only company that's done this. They stood up to the FBI, and the FBI is trying to crack a terrorist phone, and mm-hmm. Apple said, no, we're not going to give you the code. We're not going to break that phone. We're not going to help you crack into our ecosystem, and they actually got away with it, which is amazing. Um, a little trickier to do in some other countries, but they they'd managed to do that in the United States. So awareness, then there's awareness of options and the ability for people to do something about it. The big problem is we're not unified. There's no open forum for the discussion about this. Uh, This isn't a political issue yet, but there's a backlash coming. I think it's safe to say it's not just in the United States. We're starting to see a backlash brewing, political backlash, I should say, many parts of the world, certainly in Europe. Uh, there's a push coming now where political representatives are starting to get smart about these issues. They're starting to make inquiries. They're starting to make demands. They're starting to use their legislative power and their regulatory power to change the behavior of these governments. That's going to be the battle to watch. And if you care about this issue, it's time for you to get involved in the political process and speak to your representatives. On that note, I just want to add one line. It's a quote from William the Silent that I got passed along yesterday. Because if you think that this is hopeless and there's nothing you can do, just come back to these lines. One need not hope in order to undertake, nor succeed in order to persevere. Now, if you'd like to read more of Robert's work, be sure to pick up a copy of his book, Vaporized. It's available on Amazon and pretty much everywhere else. If all of this talk about media and what it means got you to thinking we'd like to hear from you, drop by our LinkedIn page, send us a message on Twitter, tell us what you want to know about the future or what's worrying you about the present. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be talking to Bitcoin expert Mark Jeffrey about how money is becoming digital and disappearing. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listening.